Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The U.S. stock markets finished off the worst week of the year with a gain, you know, despite the fact that, as expected, the trade talks between the United States and uh, China broke down today and no deal. The new tariffs went into effect at midnight this morning. And, um, you know, despite the fact that Trump is now retaliating by escalating the trade war, he still claims that the discussions are going well, that they're making a lot of progress. And none of that makes any sense, because if things are going well and you're making progress, you don't escalate the war. That makes no sense. All that is going to do is piss off the Chinese. So if everything is going so well, you would not want to do that. I mean, this shows that things are breaking down, uh, that uh, there's some desperation. And so Trump feels like he has to turn up the pressure in order to try to force the Chinese into a deal. Although I'm not even sure Trump believes a deal is actually better than the tariffs. I mean, first of all, I don't believe that Trump is going to be able to deliver the type of substantive, game-changing, great deal that he has been promising. So from that perspective, if Trump actually believes that tariffs are good for the U.S. economy because it means we're going to get some kind of windfall, that the Chinese are going to be sending us all this money, well, then maybe he prefers the tariffs uh, to a deal that does not live up to the hype. But of course, Trump is wrong if that's what he believes. The tariffs simply represent taxes on the American consumer. They are just one type of tax. You can have a sales tax. You can have an income tax. You can have a tariff. All the taxes are paid by American people. It doesn't matter what you call them or how you want to levy them. That's where the money is coming from. And so if you think lower taxes are good, then you can't think tariffs are good unless you're going to offset the tariffs uh, by cutting taxes someplace else and say, well, look, we're going to fund government through tariffs as opposed to funding government through another source. But the tariffs in and of themselves do not deliver a benefit to Americans. They simply make products that are subject to the tariffs more expensive to buy. So Americans have a choice, pay the higher price or don't buy the product. And it is the Americans who are the losers. But again, you know, I'm watching the coverage of this on uh, on CNBC this morning from my hotel room. And I was listening to a discussion with Ron and Sana, uh, you know, who's been uh, on CNBC for many, many years. And he's so he's kind of a regular, I guess. And so he's opining about this and he's talking about, well, what China might do as retaliation, right? How China might get us back. And the one thing that he said that was correct was that, you know, they could sell treasuries. They could stop buying treasuries. They could sell treasuries. 
And yes, that would hurt the U.S. But then somebody else was saying, but that would also hurt China because it would reduce the value of the treasuries they hold. No, it wouldn't. China has all short-term treasuries, so they can simply allow them to expire and not roll them over. I mean, China won't be hurt at all. It's not going to lose any money if it stops lending more money to the United States. It's the United States that is the loser because it loses a major lender, and now it has to find a new lender to replace China. And that course could mean a higher interest rates, you know, higher cost of borrowing, or the Federal Reserve steps up, in which case it's more inflation because there's more money creating. But the one crazy thing that Insana said the Chinese could do to hurt America, to get back at America, is they could devalue their currency, which is an asinine statement. Right. But it is the same type of thinking that really permeates uh, through the mainstream of the investing community that somehow it hurts America if the Chinese reduce the value of their money. Now, there was actually a woman that was on the panel with him that was also on CNBC that actually picked up on this and actually said the right thing. She said that, no, that would hurt China because it would basically be undoing the damage of the tariffs, right? If the Chinese respond to, let's say, a 25% tariff by debasing their currency by 25% so that the American consumer doesn't feel the pain of the tariff, well, then the Chinese feel the pain of the tariff. So that's not a retaliation against us. That is basically them throwing themselves on a hand grenade to spare us the pain of these tariffs. So that would not be something that the Chinese would do. A weak Chinese currency is good for America and bad for China. What the Chinese need is a stronger currency because that means their citizens are wealthier. That means the wages of their workers have more purchasing power. That means the Chinese can buy more stuff and enjoy a higher standard of living. Of course, the flip side is that a weaker dollar, which is what we're going to get, is going to hurt Americans. You know, Rick Santelli, who is someone that I I like quite a bit, but unfortunately, uh, you know, he's been getting quite a bit of things wrong uh, since Donald Trump has been president. And he was saying today that America is the world's biggest customer. And so nobody can afford to lose America as a customer, meaning the Chinese are going to have to come to the table and do something because we're so important to China and the rest of the world because we're the world's biggest customer. And I, I don't disagree that we are the world's biggest customer. The question is why? And are we a good customer? Just because somebody is a big customer doesn't mean they are a good customer. And the reason that we're the biggest customer is because all the other countries lend us the money to buy the stuff that we really can't afford. So it's vendor financing. The Chinese loan Americans money so Americans can buy Chinese products. But is that really meaning we're a good customer because we can never repay these loans. So the only way that China can maintain this relationship with America is to keep lending Americans more money to buy even more stuff they can't afford and ignore the fact that they're never going to get repaid on the loans that have already been made. Now, if that's the case, we're not just the world's biggest customer. We are the world's worst customer because we're buying stuff we can't afford and we're writing checks that nobody can cash because if they tried, they would bounce. So really, the best thing that China could do is cut us off. Right. That's what happens if you have a big customer that you have to loan money to. They're not actually buying from you. You're giving them stuff. 
right? You're, you're, if you're lending somebody money that they're never going to pay back, it's not really a loan. It's a gift. And if you have to give your customer money to buy your products, you don't really have a customer. You're just pretending you have a customer. And that is the problem. The world doesn't want to admit that they've been financing deadbeat customers. No one wants to admit that America is not really a, a good customer because they don't want to you know, look for an alternative. So they continue to throw good money after bad, right? Continuing to vendor finance, loaning their deadbeat customer more and more money and completely ignoring the fact that they're not going to get paid back, right? And the sooner this stops, the better. And maybe the pressure that Trump is putting on China will actually force them to do what they should have done on their own, right? Which is to get out of this arrangement and to stop vendor financing uh, Americans and look for customers who can afford to buy Chinese products. And what does that mean? That means where they don't have to loan them the money and those other countries produce products that Chinese consumers want. And so they can be exporting products made in China and then importing products made someplace else. So the consumer's demand, desires get satisfied. Right now, Chinese export stuff to America and then take our IOUs. They take our bonds, right? Or they take our dollars that they get from selling us stuff and they buy stocks, they buy real estate, they buy other types of financial assets because we're not making enough actual products that they want to buy. And so the real losers are going to be the Americans because when the ride on the global gravy train comes to an end, right, when we, we can't buy stuff that we can't afford anymore, when Americans are forced to live within their means, this is going to be a dramatic decline in our standard of living. And of course, it's going to lead to this massive recession, right? Because Americans are, it's all about buying stuff and spending money. We've built an entire economy around that. I mean, we've got all these stores, right? I think the statistics is we have five times as much uh, retail store space as the country that has the next highest amount. And I forget which country that is, but we're five times higher than that one. You know, at a time where more and more people are turning to e-commerce, right? So we really have to dismantle this gigantic, you know, distribution system which exists in the United States that underlies this service economy where Americans go around shopping, buying stuff that was made in other countries that was bought on credit, right? This whole thing is going to implode, and that means a very, very big recession. Now, the Federal Reserve, right, is already out talking about how it plans to deal with the next recession, right, how it wants to tweak the quantitative easing program. And so instead of doing the same type of QE they did before, where the Fed is like, okay, we're going to buy $85 billion a month, right, worth of uh, treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, what they're talking about now, and maybe they launched some trial balloons to see how you know the markets react to it, but now they're talking about just targeting a yield, right, trying to pick a yield. Let's say we're going to keep the yield on the one-year treasury at 1%, right? And no matter what, we're going to make sure the yield stays at 1%. Now, obviously, too, when you have a Federal Reserve coming in and saying, we are going to peg an interest rate, right? That means they're price fixing. They're saying, we don't want the interest rate that is being determined in the market. We want to interfere in the market so that the interest rate is lower than the rate that the market would set. Now, whenever you have a government planner, right, or especially a central banker, basically say that they are admitting that this 
is not capitalism, right? They don't want the free market discovering a rate. And the reason they don't want it is because they don't like the rate. Because if the free market wants treasury yields to be, let's say they want the one-year treasury yield to be 4%, and the Federal Reserve says, no, 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 we don't want it to be 4%. We want it to be 1%. That is going to create a lot of problems. Because if you believe in capitalism, if the rate that the market finds, that the market discovers is 4 then that's the rate, right? That's the just like... The, the, the price of oil or the price of wheat or the price of anything in a free market, you want the price that the market discovers. That's where the market clears. That's where you don't have a shortage or a surplus, right? That That's basic supply and demand. That's, you know, econ 101. But the Fed is saying, we don't want that. We want to set a rate that is materially lower than the rate that the free market wants. Well, that is the source of our problems. In fact, the reason the Fed constantly feels it has to artificially suppress interest rates is because we have so much debt as a result of the artificial suppression of interest rates in the past. That's why I pointed out the irony of that on my last podcast, that you now have the Federal Reserve kind of warning that there's too much corporate debt out there. Well, the reason there's too much debt out there is because they kept interest rates artificially low. And what they're saying now is, well, if there's another recession, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to keep interest rates artificially low to encourage over-leveraged companies to go even deeper into debt. You know, if interest rates are rising, that is a mechanism, that is a market mechanism for correcting that problem because higher interest rates discourage borrowing and encourage savings. So if we have too much debt and the Fed comes out and says, hey, we have too much debt, what is the market solution for an economy that has too much debt? Higher interest rates, right? Because that brings down the debt fewer people borrow. Now, more people start saving because they want to earn the higher interest rates. And of course, yes, some of those bad loans uh, default as interest rates are going up and there's going to be some losses, you know, but that's the way capitalism works. But what the Fed is saying is we're going to short circuit capitalism. We're going to dismantle the safeguards because we don't want the recession. Right. The recession is part of the cleansing process in order to reset the economy, to clean out all the malinvestments and the mistakes that are made. And now you can have real economic growth. But the Fed doesn't want to hear that. The Fed's saying we are going to suppress interest rates and we're going to pick a number that we think is right. We don't care what number the market wants. Uh, We just want to pick a number out of the hat because we think we know better. But really what they're trying to do is prop up asset prices that should be falling. Because if assets are overpriced, the best thing that can happen is the price comes down. Because mistakes are made when things are overpriced. But what the Fed wants is, no, we want to prevent the mistakes from being corrected because we don't want the pain of having to deal with reality. So we want to maintain the fantasy. So they're saying we're going to do that by fixing rates at a lower rate. Now, all that is going to do is compound the very problems that they think they're trying to solve. Yes, they may delay some of the pain uh, by kicking the can down the road a little bit longer, uh, but all the, ultimately, all that means is there's much more pain to deal with because the problems got worse uh, as the can was being kicked. But the mechanism for this, right, would be just if the Fed is going to say we're not going to let uh, one-year treasuries go above 1%, how do they do that? Well, what they have to do is they have to step into the market 
and buy treasuries to make sure that the rates don't go up. And so that means that the QE program would actually be unlimited because who knows how much money they're going to have to print in order to maintain that. I mean, obviously, the higher the rate of inflation actually goes, the more people who are going to want to unload their treasuries and the more treasuries the Fed is going to have to buy and the more money they're going to have to print in order to do it. And that is the potential spiral out of control. Because as inflation is going up, and you know, by the way, we got the government's version of inflation that came out today, the CPI for April, and actually came out a little bit lower than what they were looking for. They were looking at 0.4, and we got 0.3. Year over year, exactly 2%. The prior was 1.9. They were looking for 2.1. And of course, if you take out food and energy and just look at the core, it was up 2.1% year over year. Now, look, if you've got the CPI and the core CPI both up 2 to 2.1% year over year, you would think, oh, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Inflation is right on the Fed's goal. But no, the Fed still wants inflation to be higher. At least that's what they're claiming. And that's why interest rates are still as low as they are. So those numbers are going to go up. They are going to go up a lot higher than 2%. Well, let's say they go up to 2.5-3% and the Federal Reserve comes out and says, we are going to set interest rates, the yield on the one-year Treasury, at 1%. Well, how many people are going to want to own treasuries yielding 1% when inflation is 3%? Nobody. So pretty much everybody who has treasuries are going to sell them. And the only buyer is going to be the Fed, right? Because what other idiot is going to come out there and buy treasuries yielding 1% when the inflation rate is 3%? But also what happens is as more and more holders of treasuries make the rational decision to get out of a money-losing asset, That means the Fed has to print even more money to buy up those bonds. And that means that's even more inflation. So as the Fed creates inflation to buy bonds to maintain this artificially low interest rate, well, now the inflation rate goes up. And now more people want to sell bonds. And again, it's not just treasuries that they want to sell. They want to start selling all sorts of bonds. And then what's going to happen is the spreads are really going to widen, right? Because if the Federal Reserve is buying treasuries, but nothing else. And it has to keep on printing money to buy more and more treasuries. And especially in the next recession, we're going to have massive deficits. We're going to have 2 to $3 trillion a year budget deficits. And so the Fed's going to have to print all the money to buy up all those bonds too. And so as inflation is accelerating out of control, yet the Fed keeps buying treasuries, that means the spread between treasuries and everything else is going to be widening. Interest rates on corporate debt and state debt is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that also has profound implications for the markets as these spreads blow up and a lot of companies start bank going bankrupt. What the Fed might have to start doing is not just buying treasuries. They might have to start targeting corporate bonds and high yield bonds or municipal bonds. I mean, the Fed's going to have to start buying everything. It's like, you know, the uh, character you know, that keeps putting his finger in the dike. You put your finger in one hole, right? And then all of a sudden, another hole pops up. Now you got to plug up that one. Then there's another hole and another hole. And you, you keep trying to put your fingers to plug up all these holes. This is what's going to be going on with the Fed trying to control interest rates as it keeps creating inflation. Because as it creates inflation, 
to artificially suppress interest rates, the real rates of interest have to go up to compensate lenders for the increased inflation that the Fed has to create in order to artificially suppress rates. And this is going to lead to a spiral. This is going to lead to a a currency crisis, a dollar crisis. I mean, as I said, the writing is here. It is on the wall for everybody to see. Unfortunately for most people, it might as well uh, be written in in Greek uh, because people are not able to read uh, the language. I want to talk to about the uh, the markets as well today, not just the fact that we had a little bit of a rally to cap off again, as I said, the worst week of the year, but it was uh, punctuated by the uh, highly anticipated Uber IPO. And as I have been warning on this podcast, it was an Uber disaster. And this should have been obvious uh, to a lot of people based on what was going on with Lyft, right? The Lyft uh, IPO was a disaster. I mean, it came out at 72. Uh, It had a pop up to 88 the first day. It closed today at 5109, down 7.7%, new low on the year. In fact, it almost broke 50. The intraday low was 50 spot 02. So the stock is down better than 30% uh, from its IPO, better than 40% from its opening day high. And remember, when this happened, I said the reason that I thought that Uber was going to rush its IPO was because it wanted to hurry up and go public before Lyft got any lower. Right, because Lyft was sinking like a stone, and Lyft is really the only, you know, comp that Uber has. Right, it's a company that's pretty much a competitor in the same business. So the value of of Lyft is a good proxy for the value of of Uber. Uh, and you might have thought, hey, why didn't Uber just cancel and wait for a better environment? See, I thought that no, that would be a big risk because if they waited too long, the door might be shut. I mean, Lyft could sink so much that they wouldn't even be able to go public. So they rushed it out as quickly as they could, and they ended up pricing it yesterday at the very low end of the range, right? They were looking at a range of like, I think, 44 to 50 or something like that. They ended up with a $45 price, which was a much, much lower valuation, maybe maybe like $80 billion. Uh, they were initially talking before the Lyft IPO or on the day of the Lyft IPO, uh, Uber was supposed to be like $120 billion. So, you know, far from that. But then they were having a hard time opening the stock and the stock actually opened at $42 a share. That's $3 below the IPO price. I mean, it broke the syndicate bid before the opening tick. Now, I can't even remember the last time I saw an IPO open like that, right? Where they, meaning that the people who bought it in the open market actually got a better price than the people who got the shares on the IPO which normally doesn't happen. Normally, you know, everybody wants the shares on the IPO. That's the Those are the lucky guys because they buy it on the IPO and then they get to sell it when it opens and the public buys at a higher price. But this time, the people who got shut out, the people who didn't get any stock, right, who had to go into the market and buy it, they got a better price than the people who were able to get the stock because they had the connections on the IPO, which basically means nobody wanted this stock. People got stuck with this stock. Maybe they were just doing it. They were doing a favor for their broker just so they can maintain uh, their relationship to continue to get access to more IPOs uh, that are good. They took ones that they didn't want. So this was a disaster. The stock immediately sold off all the way down to 4106. It rallied back intraday, but it never got back to the $45 
IPO price and then rolled over and closed at 41.57 down 7.6% on the day. So if you were lucky enough or unlucky enough rather to have gotten shares of Uber on the IPO, the day of the IPO, you're already down 7.6% on your purchase. And the bad news is the bottom's probably not in. I mean, who knows how much further these stocks are going to fall uh, before they find some kind of bottom, especially if the, the bear market rally is over, right? Now that we no longer have a trade deal, right? So now that that's off the table, now that the Fed is not quite as dovish as people were hoping, at least, you know, uh, superficially, uh, now that we're going down, if the markets are going to correct down to the lows, uh, these new IPOs have that much more damage uh, potentially because they don't really have any history and so they're very speculative stocks and there could be a lot of selling in these names i mean ultimately the market probably isn't even big enough uh for both lyft and uber so they're either going to have to merge one's going to have to buy the other i mean my guess might be that the one that runs out of cash first is the one that has to be acquired right and they're probably they're in like an like an arms race right now where they keep spending money to try to grab market share. Uh, in the meantime, all this is done at the expense of profitability, which neither of these two companies have. But, you know, people buying into these stocks, this is a very, very risky game because nobody even knows, uh, you know, what the future is going to bring. I mean, normally in a, in a real environment where we had normal interest rates, where the Fed wasn't artificially suppressing them, I don't think money losing companies like this would be able to come public. I would think that a company would have to prove that it had a viable business model and was able to generate a profit before it would go public, before it would be, you know, an acceptable investment for mom and pops, right, to put it in their IRAs or whatever they're doing. You would at least have to be buying into a business that has proven that it makes sense, at least that it's made sense in the past. I mean, nobody knows about the future, right? So a company can be profitable now and things could change, right? The market can change, uh, new competitors can emerge, right? Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future, but you at least know what happened in the past. And when you buy a company, you know, you, the future is unknown, right? So you have all that risk. But at least, you know, you can go on the past to see, well, what was the company worth, you know, last year, the year before that? How did it do? How much money did it make? But if you're getting into a situation where not only is the future unknown, but so is the past, because the stock that you're buying hasn't even proven that it was able to make money before you bought it, then how the hell do you know that it's ever going to make money after you buy it? I mean, you don't even have reason to believe that. I mean, if a company's been around for decades and it's been making money year after year after year and paying dividends, you can reasonably assume that it's probably going to continue to do that in the future. Now, there's no guarantees. Things can change in the future. That's an unknown, but we know the past. But if you're asked to buy a stock that's never made a profit yet, Right? How do you know that they ever will? These are highly, highly speculative stocks, uh, yet Wall Street is putting lipstick on these pigs as if they're acceptable to the public, and the only reason they're able to do that is because of the Fed. 
because of this artificial suppression of interest rates that leads to all these bad decisions, all this misallocation of capital. It is all a result of the Fed and their manipulation of interest rates. And ironically, that's what the Fed is saying they're going to do. The next time we're in a recession, which will be the consequence of the mistakes the Fed made in the past, the Fed is going to repeat those very mistakes as a supposed solution to the problem that it created. One thing I wanted to mention, though, before I get into uh, the topic of Bitcoin and the debate that I had here at the uh, the SALT conference yesterday, uh, I wanted to just make a quick point about what I said on the last podcast regarding uh, women's tennis players. Because then I got another email from a podcast listener to try to say, no, uh, the woman who had emailed me saying that, hey, Peter, Uh, The reason that women are getting paid more is because people prefer to watch women play tennis, right, for a number of reasons. And I said, well, maybe that's the case. Maybe people do prefer women's tennis. I don't know, uh, based on the style. But this guy sent me some statistics to show that that is definitely not the case. At least, you know, if you look at Wimbledon, the most recent Wimbledon, he pointed out that the men's semifinals, right, which all took place on one day, Right. And the female, the women's semifinals took place on another day that if you wanted to buy tickets to watch the men play tennis, the price of those tickets was six times as high as the price to watch the the women's semifinals. So that would show that in the free market, right, people think men's tennis is more entertaining than women's tennis. So people were willing to pay six times as much money to watch the men's final as they were to watch uh, the women's final. Now, maybe, you know, the men's finals, there could have been some other variables. They were a little bit more competitive. Maybe you had better players. But six to one, I mean, that really would mean that there is a strong preference for men. And apparently, this is not just a fluke. This is what's been happening at other uh, Grand Slam tournaments. And it's not just this year. But there is a higher perceived value among the tennis-going public for men's matches than women's matches. So then the question would be, why are women being paid the same? Why is the prize money, why does the the woman who wins Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or the French Open or any of these championships, why are the women paid the same as the men? And the most likely reason is because the uh, Tennis Association does not want to be accused of sexism. And they don't want the bad publicity of somebody coming out and saying this isn't fair that you have to have equal pay for equal work. And so in order to be perceived to be forward thinking and not being discriminatory, right, believing in this nonsense, they are paying women more than they are worth, right? They are paying women the same as men, despite the fact that the ticket sales and the the ad revenue is predominantly the result of the men and not the women, right? The men are actually subsidizing the women. Potentially, the men would be making more. The male prize money could be higher, but instead they're basically taking money that might otherwise have gone to the men and they're paying it to the women because they think that is um, a... A, pri- a, pr- a price that's worth paying 
in order to avoid the damage that might be done from the false perception that there's some type of discrimination going around. Because you can't really explain economics to to the public, right? It's just going to look bad optically if the man gets a bigger check than the woman and they win the same tournament. So rather than having to describe or explain the economics of it all, right, they just rather overpay the women so that they can avoid that. And maybe the money that they overpay the woman it makes up for what they would lose. Maybe, maybe if they if they didn't overpay the women, and and the women would boycott. Maybe some of the fans would boycott. Maybe there would actually be a financial price to be paid if they actually paid the women what they're worth. So in order to avoid that negative backlash by people who don't understand economics, they're just overpaying the women to avoid that situation, and they're making that financial decision as a business that you know that the cost of of, of, of not overpaying the women may be greater than the cost of overpaying the women. So that's what they end up doing. But let me uh, talk about uh, Bitcoin and my Bitcoin debate and what's going on. Uh, and first of all, Bitcoin prices, of course, I don't know if you're paying attention, but they continue to rise. Uh, they almost got, I think, Bitcoin almost got up to about 6,500, I think, 6,400 and change uh, maybe was the high uh, as I am recording this, we've pulled back a bit. So now I think we're around 6,300, uh, 63.70, I think is what I just my last tick. Uh, but I think we're coming off the highs right now. But nonetheless, Bitcoin has been moving a lot higher. And that has been emboldening everybody. I mean, there's a lot of crypto people here at SALT. I mean, they're not certainly in the majority, but there's a lot of conversations I overhear about crypto. And, you know, a lot of these crypto guys who are here have been interviewed while they were here. You've got Tim Draper. Uh, uh, you've got Barry Siebert, who was my opponent uh, in this debate, you got Novogratz, all these guys, while they were here at Salt, same as me, I saw these guys interviewed live by Fox Business, they're being interviewed by CNBC, so all these guys were given a lot of airtime to talk about Bitcoin and how great it is and how much better than gold it is. None of these outlets would interview me. I couldn't even, I couldn't buy an invitation on any uh, media outlets while I was at Salt, even though I you know, was one of the speakers. I was the opponent of Siebert. Siebert is invited on. He's on Fox. He's on CNBC. I'm not on anything, right? And he's on there spewing a bunch of nonsense. I saw him, uh, Siebert was was being interviewed by um, Maria Bartiromo. And Maria is just eating up everything he's saying. I mean, he's saying one piece of BS after another. And she's just nodding her head, oh, no, this is great, and oh, this is great. I mean, so these guys have gotten a free pass, right, with these softball questions, not only softball questions, but the media eats this stuff up, right? And so no wonder the price of Bitcoin has been going up when you have all these major financial outlets really encouraging their viewers to buy. And, you know, before my debate on gold versus Bitcoin, they actually played the commercial, right, the Grayscale Fund, right, has this commercial, the Drop Gold campaign, and they actually played the entire commercial before the debate started. So more free publicity for Grayscale and for Bitcoin. By the way, Grayscale actually has a booth here. They paid, they had a booth uh, in the exhibit hall, very small exhibit hall, so not that many booths were there, but Grayscale was one of them. And, you know, by the way, too, I didn't even realize how much the fees were for this trust, right? What the Grayscale Trust does is it owns 
uh, a bunch of cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, a basket of them, but it's a static. It's not a managed portfolio. There's, it's just a basket and it just stays the way it is. And I had talked to, to a friend of mine in Puerto Rico who owns it. And I asked my friend, um, what's the management fee? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, how much is, are the expenses of this trust, right? And he said, well, I don't think there are any. I think there's none. And I, I said to him, well, that's impossible. There can't not be any. And he said, well, I don't know about any fees. So I thought that was strange that he owns this trust and has no idea what the fees are. And um, so when I, I, I talked to Barry, I asked him and he said it was 2% a year. I was surprised. I mean, that's a lot of money that he's able to get 2% a year just to hold on to a static basket. You know, the, the, uh, if you want to buy gold and you just buy the ETFs, I don't know, it's 20 basis points. Uh, so one-tenth the amount of fees. And of course, if you just buy gold and put it in your safe at home, the fee is zero. But remember, one of the big knocks that Barry had on gold was, oh, it's expensive to store. Well, not nearly as expensive as storing uh, shares of his of his trust, which is 2% a year. So I thought that was uh, you know crazy that, he, that he's able to charge so much and a lot of people buying it don't even realize what they're paying. But anyway, I thought that the debate, I mean, went pretty well as far as I could tell. I got a lot of feedback from people who were there uh, that said that I just completely crushed them. But I'm sure that there were some diehard Bitcoin enthusiasts in the crowd that would have the opposite opinion. Because if, you've, if you're already drunk the Kool-Aid, it kind of doesn't matter what you hear. I mean, I had a, um, a, a kind of an argument with Tim Draper. Uh, in the green room, although I, I, I ran into him uh, uh, later that night at the John Fogarty concert uh, that was sponsored by Salt. And so we kind of, you know, parted as friends, but we got into this kind of contentious argument. And I think Draper's a pretty smart guy. I mean, uh, and, and I would probably agree or I do agree with a lot of what he says on a lot of subjects, except when it comes to uh, uh, Bitcoin and gold. But he seems to have the same uh, attitude now about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that Novogratz has and that Sieber has. And, 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 and pretty much, I'm, this, this is what sums it up. This is, this is what they're all saying. And it seems like everybody is now on message. So everybody in the crypto community has, is kind of going with this script. And, and basically, this is what it is. Bitcoin has won, right? Bitcoin has proven itself, and it is now the new gold, right? So the battle is already over. Gold lost and Bitcoin won. So if you still have gold, you're a fool. You don't realize that it's already lost the battle uh, to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has now proven itself to be the new gold. And now it has now taken on all of the functions that gold used to have. It is the new store of value, right? This is a bunch of nonsense. And what they are saying is the reason that this is the case is because they say that gold is kind of unique among metals in that it's the only metal that has value despite the fact that it has no use, right? It's, it's valuable just because, right? People like gold just because they like it unlike other metals that actually have uses. So they'll say, you know, copper has a use or nickel has a use and zinc has a use. So all these metals have value because people use them. But gold has value despite the fact that nobody uses it for anything, which is completely absurd. I mean, you know, whenever you hear people say this, right, because in order to try to pretend that Bitcoin has value, they have to pretend that gold has none, which makes their arguments look all the more ridiculous to try to make them with a straight face. Of course, gold has uses. I mean, pretty much everybody that's in attendance had plenty of gold. 
right? Uh, you know, there was a, for a show of hands, they asked people, you know, how many people own gold? Actually, fewer hands went up than when they asked how many people own Bitcoin. So this is a huge audience at SALT, a lot of investors, and more of them own cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, than own gold, which shows you uh, how undervalued gold is, except everybody in the audience should have raised their hand because I bet everybody was wearing some gold somewhere. Either they had a ring, a wedding ring, or they had a watch, or they had something that was made out of gold. I mean, I, there was a lot of bling I saw in the green room. A lot of guys had huge gold rings and big gold watches. I mean, there was so much gold there, right? These are wealthy people. And how do they express their wealth? They buy beautiful gold jewelry. So how could you say gold's used for nothing when it's used to make all this jewelry? Although that's only about half of what gold goes for. I mean, about 10% of it, I think, is in electronics. I mean, every one of these guys had a cell phone in their pocket. So when they said, who owns gold? You know, if you had a cell phone, you own gold. I mean, maybe there's 30 or 40 bucks worth of it in your cell phone. Raise your hand. People own gold in a lot of things. People have gold in their teeth. If you have a crown. I think about 1% of the gold is used in dentistry. But uh, Siebert was was diminishing or belittling all these uses as if it's, it's, it's irrelevant. Like, who cares about that? I mean, first they say there are no uses for it. And then when you point out the uses, they, they minimize that and say, well, that, that's, that, that's no good. That doesn't count, right? But the, the, um, the, the line that they're all pushing is because gold is unique in that it has value even though, even though nobody uses it, that is the new Bitcoin. See, so Bitcoin now doesn't need to prove a use case, right? Because initially people were saying, oh, Bitcoin is going to be money. Bitcoin is going to be used as a method of payment and the medium of exchange and all that. But since none of this is happening and Bitcoin hasn't been able to prove that it happens because it doesn't happen, because it doesn't work, because it's inefficient, because you can't price anything in it because it's too volatile. It's too expensive to use. There's too much uh, compliance now. It's too slow. You have all these problems with trying to use Bitcoin as money. But what they're now saying is, well, it doesn't matter. It, now it's the new gold. It just has value because it is. Right. Because it's so well known. Right. It's been around for 10 years. Right. It's so well known. Everybody agrees that it's so valuable. Well, it's the new gold, just like gold, except it's nothing like gold because people didn't agree that gold had value. They recognized that gold had value. Everybody was using gold for hundreds of years, maybe before it became money. It was, you know, people appreciated the unique properties and they wanted gold. It was a highly sought after, scarce, luxury good. Bitcoin doesn't have any kind of history. You can't just say, oh, we're all going to agree that Bitcoin has all this value. Well, <laughs> what if people change their minds? Right. I mean, no one's going to change their mind about gold. If somebody was going to change their mind about gold, they would have done it a thousand years ago. Not now. You know, there's no reason for people to change. We know that people like gold and people need gold for various reasons. But, you know, people's views on Bitcoin can change. But what they're saying is Bitcoin doesn't have to actually prove that it has a use case because it's the new gold. In contrast to all the other cryptocurrencies, because, right, there's lots of other altcoins. And what they're all saying, and everybody's saying the exact same thing, is that all these other cryptocurrencies, they have to prove that they satisfy some kind of niche, that they have some type of use case in order to stay relevant and have value. So, in other words, Bitcoin is gold, but all the other cryptocurrencies are like copper or nickel or zinc, right? 
where there's a use for them. So the other currencies have to actually show that they do something unique and there's a use for them in order to remain viable and have value. But Bitcoin doesn't have to do that because Bitcoin is gold. And because Bitcoin is gold, it doesn't have to actually have a use case because gold doesn't have a use case, which is complete bullshit. But it seems like everybody has gotten together and they're all saying this at the same time. So it's like a concerted campaign, right, maybe around this drop gold campaign to try to anoint Bitcoin with this crown, this golden crown as the new gold. Yet all the other cryptocurrencies have to prove that they're viable and, you know, to be a copper or to be a nickel or a zinc or a lead, whatever, right? They have, But Bitcoin doesn't have to do anything. It just has to exist, just like gold. And everybody is going to value it, of course, until the price collapses, which is going to happen because it has no value. It can't be used for anything. And I think I made that abundantly clear in my debate. A lot of people came up for me and said, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the whole thing is a, is a, is a scam. And I think that Siebert had no way to really articulate a rational rebuttal for anything I said other than focusing on the price. All he could talk about was how much better Bitcoin has performed than gold over the past 10 years, which I concede is the case, right? Bubbles always beat out everything before they pop and then they lose to everything. And if you measure Bitcoin's performance since it peaked out, it's doing way worse than gold. And I think that is the trend that is going to continue. Sure, year to date, Bitcoin is doing better than gold, right? Because we've had a rally. This is a bear market rally in Bitcoin and it will end. And Bitcoin is going to make new lows as will all these other cryptocurrencies. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention too, the argument that I was having with, with Tim Draper when I was trying to tell him that, you know, Bitcoin didn't have any value, his rebuttal to me, right, was to say, well, does your cell phone have value? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, Bitcoin is digital and your cell phone is digital. So it's the same thing. And I, I couldn't, I mean, even imagine that Draper was trying to tell me that Bitcoin was like my cell phone because Bitcoin is nothing like my cell phone. I said, my cell phone is valuable because it does stuff. Right. I can use it for things. It's a communication tool. I can talk to people. They can talk to me. But it's also a computer. You know, I've got a calculator in there. I can search the Internet. It, you know, it, I, I can do all sorts of stuff. I can be entertained. I can listen to music. I can watch movies. I can do all sorts of things with my my telephone. I can't do anything with my Bitcoin. How are you saying that Bitcoin is the same as this television, telephone? I mean, that's the kind of nonsense because they want to talk about it like it's a technology. Then he told me Bitcoin was the same thing as the internet, right? Or the computer. I said, no, it's not. Bitcoin isn't the internet. Bitcoin isn't a computer. I could use a computer. Computer makes me makes my life more efficient. It, it reduces my overhead and my business. I mean, there's all sorts of things. The internet, you can't, you know, but people fall for this. They just say it. It's like a new technology. The Bitcoin isn't the technology. Now, if you want to say that blockchain is this new technology, okay, maybe it will be. We'll see. But blockchain is not Bitcoin. And just because you buy into Bitcoin doesn't mean you got a stake in blockchain. You don't own anything, right? Blockchain may be integrated into uh, the global economy. And the way it would work would be if you put real assets on a blockchain. So if ownership of gold, right, was through a blockchain or, you know, stocks or real estate or other assets were digitized for the purpose of ease of 
uh, exchange so that it's easier for you to sell. Like I was speaking to a guy this morning and they were in the business of securitizing uh, individual pieces of real estate where you could tokenize a building and almost like creating your own uh, REIT. Uh, and then instead of selling the entire building, you can just sell off the tokens and uh, they could be on an exchange. And there's all sorts of interesting things that maybe could incorporate real assets digitally, right? That's fine. But if you're talking about making up a non-existent asset out of thin air and just pretending it has value, I mean, one of the reasons it is so easy to uh, transfer bitcoins is because you're transferring nothing. And it's obviously going to be less expensive to transfer nothing than transfer something. I mean, people talk about, oh, it's easy to divide bitcoin. Of course, it's easy to divide it. You're dividing nothing, right? If you have, an, if you have a full bitcoin, you have nothing. If you have a half of bitcoin, you have half of nothing. Well, half of nothing is nothing, right? It's nothing like gold. If I have an ounce of gold, I have an ounce of gold. I can do all sorts of things with an ounce of gold. If I divide it in half, I have two half ounces of gold, right? They're each, they're each worth half of a full ounce because I can only do half as much with it. If I'm going to make jewelry out of it, I can make half as much because I only have a half an ounce of gold as, a, as opposed to a full ounce. So when you're dividing gold, you're dividing something. When you're dividing Bitcoin, you're dividing nothing. And no matter what percent of nothing you have, whatever number you multiply by zero, the result is zero, right? So that's all you're doing. And they can't differentiate between these. And of course, you know, I told uh, Draper, you know, if Bitcoin is like my cell phone, then it should be going down in value, right? Because when I, I don't, I didn't buy my cell phone thinking my cell phone was going to go up. I know my cell phone is going to lose value as better and newer cell phones are developed in the future. Well, why would Bitcoin be any different? Why should the price of Bitcoin go up? It shouldn't. Price should go down if people are going to come up with a better one. But of course, it shouldn't even have any price because I can't do anything with it. I can do a lot of stuff with my cell phone. I can't do anything with my Bitcoin. The only thing you can do with your Bitcoin, right, is give it to somebody else. And why does that person want it? Because he wants to give it to somebody else. And why does he think he can give it to somebody else? Because he thinks the price is going to go up, right? That is the that is the entire demand. That is the entire use case for Bitcoin. It's to buy it so that you can sell it to a greater fool who's going to pay an even higher price than you paid. See, the problem is when you, the, the greater fool theory of investing is eventually you run out of fools. Eventually, you're the last fool and you're left holding the bag. Mm -hmm.